0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. According uh, to the Christian calendar, the birth of Jesus is followed by the mandated state murder of children, and the Feast of the Holy Innocents is observed today in the Orthodox churches December 29th. It's uh, December 28th in most Western churches. And it speaks really to I think the cultural moment that we're living through. It's a a bloody story in which a ruler feels threatened by small children and slaughters them. And the story then let's read it together is in Matthew chapter 2 starting with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them The exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I may too come and worship him. So it says Herod and all Jerusalem are disturbed. Herod's disturbed because he perceives a potential rival to his throne. The Messiah, the king, has been born. And the story, I think, gives us a working principle on how to consider the desire of kings and governments to worship Christ as king. Herod told the wise men, you know, tell me where the child is. Let me in on the secret so that I too may go and worship him. And of course it was a lie, it was a ploy to ensure that he could find this child and kill him and that his own power would have no challengers. And it says down in verse 16, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years and older, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. And these children, they're remembered as the holy innocents. Josephus tells us that Herod killed three of his sons because he saw them as threats to his power. Now, Josephus doesn't record the slaughter of the innocents. I guess it was too insignificant. But it certainly fits with the Herod character that he would slaughter children. And we really don't know how many children they were. I've read estimates in the thousands down to maybe 30. We really just don't know the the numbers. The Gospel of Matthew reports that an angel then comes and warns Jesus' family of the impending danger before the slaughter. And they leave the country and they go into Egypt. And so Jesus is a refugee in his first years of life. And then when he finally returns from Egypt, and Matthew will say he's following the pattern that Israel is following, called out of Egypt, his family cannot go back to their ancestral home in Bethlehem because there's still a threat from the throne. And so they go up to Nazareth. And though he avoids murder by Herod, he does not escape death by the state. Three decades later, right? Pontius Pilate, an official of the Roman Empire, pronounces Jesus' death sentence. They'll finally get him. And the biblical lesson is one that we should not miss. is that like Herod, Pilate has Jesus killed unjustly, even in Pilate's estimate, to maintain his power and to remove a threat. And so the church calendar calls us to remember that we live in a world in which political leaders are willing to sacrifice the lives of the innocent on the altar of power. We live in a world with families on the run, and where in the dark words of Scripture, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And so the story of the innocents calls us to consider the moral cost of the perpetual battle for power in which political leaders will put on the facade of religion and where the powerless and poor are slaughtered for the powerful. Whether children at the border in this country or children in the womb, innocents are still being slaughtered those on the left and those on the right are slaughtering the innocents and the christian story is powerful because we take this into account it is about the suffering of the innocent it addresses the same darkness the same sort of world that christ entered into the innocent suffer there's racism classism materialism there is the devaluation of human life. People are hurting, and according to the Feast of the Holy Innocents, the focus of God's concern is on the suffering. And this feast then accentuates the fact that God cares. He cares about the outcasts, the poor, the lowly, and he is not concerned with kings and sovereigns and palaces. God's concerns are on the events that are so small in the world's eyes, I guess they just don't make the news. They are unrecorded. They are happening in refugee camps, detention centers, slums, and prisons. The Christmas story is set among the poor and humble whose lives are always subject to being forfeited. And so this is not just another story about kings and Nations, But God, it says, has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble, as Luke puts it. And so where the church has forgotten that it is supposed to be with the weak, the foreigner, the stranger, the innocent, I believe it loses its voice. It fails to follow the mandate of Christ to take up the cross. It aligns itself with evil. We know this happened when Emperor Constantine made Christianity, the state, religion. And it happens wherever the church imagines it can establish its security in the manner of Herod. By a willingness to slaughter the innocents. And so evil is to imagine that we secure ourselves, that we create our own safety through putting people on crosses through war, through scapegoating. And I believe the church and Christians, that we are capable then of becoming evil when we align ourselves with the slaughter, the willing slaughter of the innocents. We weren't in this country on September 11th. We were in Japan. So I watched events unfold from afar. But President Bush, three days after, assured the nation that America's duty was clear. Not only to answer these attacks, but to rid the world of evil. This became his mandate. And Bush concludes his address by appealing to Paul's letter, the book of Romans. You know, the passage in chapter 8 where it says that nothing can divide us. America, I think, really set out on a kind of holy war. Bush himself says our war was on terror. It begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. Our mission was not merely to bring justice to the men and the groups that had attacked the country, but Bush says to defend freedom in a world where freedom is under attack. He fuses the Christian mission with the American mission. He fuses Christian freedom with American freedom. And this battle for freedom would be a fight for civilization, he says, and it will be led by the United States. In this struggle, both military and metaphysical, Bush says, the outcome is certain since freedom and fear, justice and cruelty have always been at war, and we know that God is not neutral between them. And so in Bush's picture, and I think we are heirs of a world that was created after September 11th, we would win the fight against evil through evil through violence, through war, through the destruction of hundreds of thousands of lives. Bush began a crusade, I think, that caught us all up, that caught the church up, which fused church and state in a way that had not been fused before. And we're living in a time when being American is confused with being a Christian. And it's no accident that if you go to the shapers of Bush doctrine, Richard Newhouse a Catholic intellectual, proposed that the American experiment in self-government should really be reconceived as a communal covenant with God. The political and theological implications of Newhouse's picture, which Bush absorbed. Newhouse says when he died and he stood face to face with his creator, he said, I will do so as an American. And he holds that the American experience, then, is the sacred enterprise of Christians. In other words, there is a blatant fusing of the American mission and the Christian mission. Michael Novak, another advisor to the Bush White House, views Christianity, modern democracy, modern capitalism. He says that it all arose with the logic of Christianity. The same logic, the same moral principles, I'm quoting the same set of cultural values, institutions, and presuppositions are present in capitalistic, liberal democracy and Christianity. Markets don't simply produce economic growth. He says they mirror the trinity in the way they enable diverse individuals to function as one in harmony. In other words, capitalism, in Novak's picture, is the invisible hand of God, God guiding the market, and the rise and spread of democratic capitalism, Novak says is, quote, the greatest story ever told. We could go on, Irving Kristol. He claims that modern conservatism should be based on a synthesis of Christianity, nationalism, and economic growth, and that Republicans should give up the resistance to being explicitly a religious party, all for the sake of banishing liberalism, which he says is the enemy. Steve Bannon, perhaps the key thinker behind Donald Trump, believes the United States is a Christian nation, not just in the sense that many are Christians in this country, but in the sense that the country's culture is christian and is to be christian and this means our war with evil is a literal war in his estimate against islam a non-christian culture we in the west must affirm our christian identity he says or we will be overrun by dangerous outsiders islamists they will impose a different identity upon us In this respect, maybe Bannon's position is closer to a Russian orthodoxy with its official sanctioning of a kind of ethno-national church. There is only one Christian kingdom. There is only one Christian city. There is only one truly Christian culture, and that is to be the church. And where the church is melded, or confused with a particular nation, a particular ethnicity, Christians will find themselves supporting tyrants on the left and the right in the name of Christ. This is not our task. We are not in the business of slaughtering the innocents on behalf of the powerful. So what are we to do? Maybe the text that people often turn to is Romans 13. But when we read Romans 13 in light of Paul's overall theology, we can see this as raising the question and Paul answering the question, how might followers of Jesus who live in the belly of the beast, which was first century Rome, I think it's modern day America, how might we live in the belly of the beast and witness to God's love? We do so by rejecting empire, by rejecting idolatry, and committing ourselves to the peace of Jesus. Our most radical task, and maybe our most subversive task, is to live as communities where the enmity that had driven Paul to be murderous, where the slaughter of the innocents that drove Herod, is overcome. Jew and Gentile, peoples of the world, joined together in one fellowship, a genuine peace in a violent world. And so we say no to empire. As Christians, we do not invest our lives in the Herods of the world, in the salvation offered by the state. We do not exercise power, nor do we offer total unquestioning allegiance to the empire. Now, that's just what every nation will want us. Our president will want total allegiance to the United States of America. But as Christians, we have already offered total allegiance to Christ. Jesus' response to his disciples' quest for power, he says, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. We do not participate in the use of the sword or violence or power in the way that the powers of this world do. We are citizens of a different kingdom, and that's what it means to be a Christian. We say no as Christians to violent resistance. We must not let the empire set our agenda or determine our means of resistance. We must not, in seeking to overcome evil, become evil ourselves. We want to be free from the idolatry of empire, which demands we offer up our lives for the state. We need to be free to point out the evils our nation continues to engage in. And so if if we're participants in that evil, Well, we're made useless. We're rendered useless as salt and light. We say yes to communities of resistance. In the end, Paul's message may be characterized as apocalyptic. But it's an apocalyptic message like that of Revelation that centers on the revelation of God's conquering kingdoms. God heals violence. He heals human brokenness through people who know God's peace and who share that peace with all the families of the earth. And so we are to be peaceable people. As Christians, we will continue certainly to be subject to the historical processes, the wielding of the sword of this world. That's not our calling. We're called to a reconciling ministry. And so Paul distinguishes between government function and Christian function. These are two separate realms. One is characterized by darkness and the other is characterized by light. So if you compare in Romans 12:19, the believer is told never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God and then 13:4 of Romans about the state not bearing the sword in vain and being a minister of God and avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. We need to read those two passages together, and what we can see is that the function exercised by government is not the function to be exercised by Christians. Believers, Paul says, echoing Jesus, are never to pay back evil for evil to anyone. We are to bless those who persecute us. We are never to take revenge. We are to leave room for the wrath of God. Our love is always to be without hypocrisy. All evil is to be abhorred. And we are to cling, Paul says in chapter 12, to what is good. So Romans thirteen eight to 10. It calls us back to the supreme law of love. Which does no wrong to a neighbor. Verses 11 and following. It calls believers to holiness and purity. We're all to be priests. Of reconciliation and peace. We are to owe nothing to anyone. Paul says. Except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor. Has fulfilled the law. And this is the law. He goes through. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. And this is summed up. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And so do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken. For salvation is near, Paul says. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so we're to be about this business of loving our neighbor, of fulfilling the law. No more violent deeds of darkness. We do not wear the armor of Caesar Or America, we wear the armor of the light of Christ. Light exposing the darkness. Christ exposing the evil. The principalities and powers. And Paul uses language very similar to the Gospel of John. That the world of darkness is passing as the light of Christ is penetrating the darkness. And we are the bearers of the light. And so Romans 13, it's a central teaching but it's not the central teaching on the state. There is a very strong strand in the gospel. Which sees secular government as the province of the sovereignty of Satan. In Luke 4, 5-8, the devil shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world. And he says, these kingdoms have been handed over to me. And I give them to whomever I wish. Jesus doesn't challenge the claim of Satan. To be able to dispose of of the rule of all nations. Paul's own teaching in 2 Corinthians. Satan is the god of this world, he says, point blank. And he is the prince of the power of the air, he says in Ephesians 2.2. John concurs with this. He says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The prophet Hosea even condemns Israel and the king of Israel. He says they have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. In Revelation, Rome is pictured as a blasphemous beast. And so we need to read Revelation 13 with Romans 13. We find a clear picture in Revelation of a world government given authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And this is clearly not God's government. The government arrogantly blasphemes against heaven and makes war on the saints and overcomes them. And so we need to be able, with all due respect, to point out the beast who rules over us. Christians are involved in solving the problem through participation in a new political order, a new kingdom, a new economics, a new culture. It's not capitalism, it's not liberal democracy, it's the church. Christians should never blindly obey government or acquiesce to evil or imagine they can serve God and mammon, Christ and the devil, or through serving the nation, serve the church. Certainly, we are to render to the powers what is due them, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, but whose inscription, Jesus asks, is on the coin, And we need to ask the same of ourselves. Whose inscription is upon you? And to whom do you belong? To Caesar or Christ? To America or Christ? And so the very telling of the Christmas story, I believe if it is told rightly, it is an act of resistance. We see the lie, the deception of the state. We see the manipulations of power, We see the lie only as we identify with the slain innocents. The innocents at the border, the innocents of the womb, the enslaved, the outcasts, the refugees. God's side is with the weak things, shaming the strong. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. And we know God hears the cries of the oppressed, and they do not go forever unanswered. Whether the innocent slaughtered by Herod or the innocent slaughtered by America, we know that their cause is taken up by the innocent one who suffered under Pontius Pilate. Through the slaughter of the truly innocent one, God was emptying death of its power. He was vanquishing evil. He was overcoming violence. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.